everybody and welcome. I add my welcome to that of Bob's last night. Um, I'm Raymond Flood and um, I want to introduce you first of all to the other members of the team. We've got Claire at the back who will be looking after all of us. Our colleague Matt from Tall who's going to be recording this particular session. And we have Bob Buckley and we have John Axford. And really the main difference between this summer school this year and the summer school that you had last year is that you've got a much better looking team. So I think if you could... Uh, I suppose as usual the important thing is that once you get into a lecture room or into uh, one of the rooms in here is to find your way out quickly. That's the most crucial thing. So as you know you're above reception so down the stairway on either side and then out through the front door. We haven't lost a student yet and we hope not to lose any during this summer school. So what are we about in this particular summer school. Um, this lecture is, is a general one in a sense, it's a gentle introduction to what we're going to do. And really, it's the reverse of what you were doing last year. Last year, you were concentrating upon a very definite problem. The problems that you were given were very well defined. And what you were trying to do was to obtain a solution and to implement that solution on a computer on a machine, an inanimate machine, with no intelligence, no ability whatsoever. And you had to tell it everything that had to be done, starting off with assembly language, moving up through bare bones, eventually ending up in Java. We're going to be considering this week a much more difficult problem. The difficult problem there is that the problems we're dealing with are going to be ill-defined. And a lot of the issues that we're going to be connected with are examining techniques where we can try to make our problems stop being ill-posed to get them in a form that we can communicate them then to somebody who can do the programming to solve it. So we're looking at systems analysis, but I know John will be saying more about that later in the week, the more current term I think now is requirements engineering, um, uh, rather than what you had last year, which were very well-defined problems. The reason we do it at the summer school is that a lot of the difficulties in connection with um, these partic this particular topic has to do with communication. You know, so it lends itself very much to the kind of activity that we'll be doing um, where you'll, you'll be able to watch yourselves and, and see the misunderstandings and see the difficulty of being able to communicate one with the other. So it's, it's, it's a very good topic to use at the summer school. So let's look at the sort of framework of the, the week. It's um, more intensive, I think, than the, the first year uh, in, in a variety of ways. These give you outline timetable here. Um, some of our sessions will be a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, depending just how the discussion goes. But you can see that we're having a mixture of lectures and of seminars and of presentations and of group work. So that you, we've got the lectures here. So here we are. Um, that's Sunday, so it must be 11 o'clock roughly. And then Bob Buckley will be talking about the systems development paradigms after lunch at 2 o'clock. And then John tomorrow um, will be doing both of the lectures, the introductions to system analysis and the systems analysis modelling. And then Bob will be coming back and doing the fifth lecture on the data design and entity relationship diagrams. So they're the formal things, but they of course lead on to exercises and we've got different exercises for you. The first one starting off later on this afternoon and then you'll come back at different times in order to uh, share your conclusion 
with the rest of the group. And the way that we do that is that um, you will get the list of syndicate teams if you, ha if you haven't already got them. Uh, the way that we do that is we ask some of the groups on each time that you return to report on your findings. So you'll be coming up either with um, sheets from the flip chart or, or some other way in order to, to um, record your conclusions for your particular exercises. So we've found in the past it's gone very well. People have enjoyed the week and find, find it stimulating, and I hope you will, you will as well. Right. So we've got that. Um, so that's just what I've said here. Um, uh, the exercises, yes, just down at the bottom. The first one uh, has to do with um, a hole in the wall, a cash machine, an ATM machine, and we'll be going through various of the techniques in that particular scenario for an ATM machine um, and that's the kind of thing that you'll be reporting on. The assessment component of the week is based around another scenario which has to do with a newsagent and uh, again it's different from last year. Uh, the assignment not multi-part. What happens is that you have a particular exercise where we want to do the analysis of the newsagent's problem and you work on that uh, towards the end of the week um, and then handed in on the Thursday afternoon submission of the group part of the assignment here. So it's not a multi-part one, it's just the one part to be handed in at the one time towards the end of the week. So the first part of the week, the ATM is the uh, scenario that we're working on and then it's the news agent assignment that you're working on for the second half of the week and then there's an individual uh, part of the coursework as well. So that's that. Um, all right, so we've said that. Um, as I say, you know, we, uh, an important part of it will be the presentations when you come back sharing the result of the group work that you've, you've sort of done. Okay. All right. So let's look at what I uh, want to do for the remainder of this, this lecture here. And it has to do with, with information systems, uh, with a collection of, of information that we want to organise in a way that is meaningful and from which we can extract value from it. And I suppose when putting the lecture together, um, since we were called it systems analysis, I thought it would be useful to say something about what is a system. And uh, that's a, a very well-developed area, certainly in um, engineering. Um, so I'll say a little bit about that. Then I'll go on and look at some problems that can arise. And um, when giving this lecture, I never have to worry about examples because I know that two or three weeks before summer school, there's going to be something in the newspaper about some particular IT project that hasn't gone to plan and true enough this year it was one of the health service projects in this country called Connect for Health which had been rolled out in certain areas in London and I see from some of you nodding that you probably heard the same news item and I think it wasn't terribly successful that initial rollout and the cost of the project was something amazing like or will cost something like 13 billion pounds and we'll be looking at some more examples of that. So hopefully as you came in you got three pieces of paper, one of which was the, um, the outline of the um, slides that I'm going to be using and again slightly different from last year, we'll be handing out the notes for the lectures as as the, the lectures are given, rather than presenting you with all of them at the beginning of the, of the week as, as happened last time. You should have got um, my lectures which were on pieces of paper with holes in them, um, but I found something that I wanted to share again last night which I photocopied myself, which has got no holes in it, so you'll have to make your own holes in that, one of which is uh, 
uh, I'll re be referring to a single sheet of paper head at reminders and another one from the, the Journal of Financial Accountability and Management. So hopefully you've got three documents. I'll refer to those as we go along. So we'll be looking at the, the problems in information systems really from three points of view. Um, one of which is the end user, the other is the client, and then the third one is paralleling the role that you're taking on this week, which is the developer. So we'll look at some of the issues connected with that, and then just rehearsing or going back over some of the uh, points to do with the software lifecycle that you, you've seen in the course already. So really this is a as John and Bob and I were saying earlier on down in the courtyard, we're sort of setting the scene. And part of the, the drive, I think the main learning objective that I want for this particular thing is for you to realise that these so-called soft problems, this systems analysis, this problem specification, really are very difficult to do. Very, very hard. And the whole sort of project management of them is another dimension to it. So it's really... Um, and a lot of that has to do with um, proper communication and methods of communication. All right. So let's take a sort of old, slightly old-fashioned idea um, as to what a, a system is, and perhaps say a little bit before doing this here about the sort of the history of the things. It's again emphasising the point. Um, when computation first started, it was really concerned with developing tables to a large extent, calculating tables, even from the you know, time of Babbage with his difference engine in the 19th century was essentially calculating a, a particular table of particular functions. Um, during the Second World War, uh, calculations were done to enable people to derive gunnery tables. Then work was done in order to be able to do census calculations and collation. And it was only after the war, really, that um, people realised that there was a possibility of making money out of computing <laughs> and try to apply it to business use. And that's the side of it that we're going to be doing. And one of the first attempts, so a lot, a lot was carried over from other traditional disciplines particular engineering disciplines, and one of the things that was found quite useful was this idea of, of a system. I want to say a little bit about what a system is, but absolutely crucial to it um, is this notion here, <coughs> the system boundary. <coughs> Excuse me. So system is something, we'll say a little bit more about what that something might be, which interacts with an environment. The crucial thing in a sense, is the interaction. So the crucial thing is the system boundary. Defining the boundary delineates the system. Right? And it um, is really one of the issues that is terribly important to concentrate upon, terribly important to get right, because it then helps to specify what the contract actually is um, that you're going to undertake to deliver. So we have here the idea of an environment, everything outside this uh, ellipse, and what we're getting from the environment here is inputs coming in, outputs going out. Right. Um, one of the terms I'll be mentioning later on is the automation boundary. And the automation boundary is another type of boundary where you decide what parts of the system you're, that you're trying to computerise that you actually are going to computerise and what parts of it you're going to leave as, as manual components. So it's this separation out between the outside world, whatever that may be, and the environment and the system that you have. And you can see from this diagram the, his, the um, sort of heritage that it comes from because it's uh, dealing with control mechanisms within here. So you have inputs coming in, 
um, system does some particular thing in order to generate outputs and there's some kind of controlling going on here um, by means of sampling what the either the outputs or the inputs I'll say a little bit more about that that in a minute so the crucial kind of terms that we're having just to summarize them here which you have in the notes is that your system exists in an environment right? um, that can be very hard to um, specify completely. It's something that is well worth thinking about and a lot of the intellectual effort in the area does tend to go into that with the kind of systems that we'll be looking at. Because really what we're doing, when you think of it, is we're imposing, we're trying to impose some kind of intellectual structure on a, a setup, an organization, the way that an organization works. So it doesn't readily lend itself necessarily to any particular approach. So that what we have to do is to keep in mind that what we're having is an intellectual artifact, which is supposed to represent um, some components of a real world situation. Um, so these are the two points just made there. The system and the environment separated by some kind of boundary. You're going to have inputs and outputs. Now, also you're going to have interfaces and you can see here um, the idea of the reductionist point of view, that what we want to do with any kind of complicated setup, um, the approach to problem solving, which has proved so effective, is to try to decompose the problem into sub-problems, um, into subsets in some particular way, and to allow interaction between those two components that will eventually solve whatever problem it is that you wanted to do. So it's the analog in a system point of view from what you have in an ordinary problem-solving situation. You try to break it down into, into components. Right. Um, you saw it within programming in the sense of either using procedures or in the sense of using object dep objects depending upon what paradigm it is that you may be using it. And this is just reiterating that point here that you can continue doing <coughs> excuse me, exactly the same things down and down. All right. In an engineering setting, the control mechanism is particularly important, and we'll be implementing that in, in, in slightly different ways, um, as, you, as you will see. Um, and there are really basically two types of control in an engineering setting which correspond to reacting, uh, adjusting the system depending upon how the outputs are behaving, or adjusting the system depending upon how the inputs are behaving. So you've got a sort of feed forward or feedback type of approach. So a thermostat would be an example of a feedback with a thermostat in the room, wherever it may be, um, is, is sampling the output, the output being the temperature in the room, and going back to the, um, the air conditioning system and telling it either to come on or to whatever it has to do. Whereas if you've got a, a manufacturing industry and you are creating some particular product and you sample the orders coming in, you look at what the orders are coming in and you're just your manufacturing in order to respond to what the orders, so that would be responding to what the inputs are coming into the system. So, um, many situations have a, have a combination of, of both of them. Um, and there's questions to do with how stable the system is, depending upon the kind of feedback that you're taking. Probably, this is the, the hard bit really here. This is the emergent idea, that if you go back to the previous slide, and the couple of bullet points that we have, maybe the bottom one here. A system may have subsystems, a subsystem is also a system, and may have further subsystems of its own. And 
This is the tension with the reductionist point of view to problem solving or to analysing anything. That if you keep breaking it down, you keep going down to things that are getting simpler and simpler. If we look at us um, and you keep breaking this down, you can break us down into various, I suppose, um, uh, medical or biological systems in the body. You can go further and we eventually end up being made of hydrogen and carbon and oxygen and, and whatever it is. And then you say, aha, well this person is just made of water and hydrogen and oxygen and silicon and so on. You know, how is he conscious? You know, you, you don't ask, is he conscious? <laughs> you say, I'm conscious, I'm standing up here talking to you, but you're sitting there hopefully listening. Um, and we know that we're doing that. How do you predict such a characteristic from the subsystems that are composed of these chemical, biochemical components? So that what you can have um, is this idea of uh, so-called emergent behaviour, um, a system of some properties that are not directly dependent on the properties of its parts. So what I was just saying there was that consciousness for us is a classical example of that. It's not something that you know, would be predictable or dependent upon any particular thing and there's a very big area of, um, of research. So those kind of, and I think Bob, you had an example of one yesterday where you were talking about um, the development of email. Email, uh, not the development of sharing of, um, uh, <coughs> sharing of files, sharing of documents. And then it was thought that, um, oh, we could use a particular network in order to transfer messages between one another. And the messages actually took over. The, uh, am I right? In Quite uh, unexpected, yeah. yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's... Uh, so you can get those kind of, of things here. So uh, you've seen this diagram before in one of the units that we have. Um, and I think uh, the crucial thing and what makes a difference is this word in the middle. Yeah, that really is what it's all about. Now, you're not, you're not sitting at home just doing it for um, your own sake, you know, writing a computer program because you want to. You know, this is, this is important material that uh, what we have here is the, the main actors, the main stakeholders within the, within the situation, but you have that kind of relationship between them. So you've contractual arrangement where you're contracting in order to uh, get something um, delivered. So in a way, I've actually made a sort of note there in a way that um, perhaps put the actors in here, put the verbs in here, maybe have the systems analyst here and have the requirements here. So that what's happening is that you're going from a problem, um, passing it through the systems analyst, and coming up with requirements down here. So I think the diagram might be better if, if this word is, if these two things are, are interchanged. Sorry? And then climb the requirements. Well, climb pace for the requirements. We need to maybe just do across to here to get that. <laughs> All right. Okay. So let's look and see. Right about some of the problems that can go wrong. And this is where we have, if I could just refer you to the handouts that I, I gave. Um, there are two of them, the ones that I photocopied last night. So these are the ones without the holes in them. And one of which I thought would be quite useful to uh, uh, let you have. It's the single sheet and it came from, <coughs> it's a document produced by the Registrar of, 
of Oxford University, and it's in connection with um, a financial management system called OSIRIS, which did run into difficulties. And what I thought was interesting in this, <coughs> excuse me, one-page summary uh, that you have in front of you is that you can almost read some of the despair behind the experience that they, they had. Even just the, the titles are useful, irrespective of what the, the text may be. So these, it's headed, Lessons to be Learned from the Implementation of OSIRIS, a uh, financial management system. Good communication, project governance and management, training, process review and development, resources, Involvement of MIS, now BSP, relationship with suppliers, ongoing support, salaries, parallel and pilot processing. So even just in itself, this is quite a useful sort of checklist of things to, to look at. And you can see the sort of lessons that are, are being learnt must have been... Um, uh, well, there were, uh, I think, John, you were saying that this is one of the case studies that's used in the master's programme in, in software engineering uh, in the project management unit connected with that. So do look at that um, when you have a chance. And the other thing is from the Journal of Financial Accountability and Management. This is a, and it's trying to analyse some of the reasons why you have failures within the, the public sector it's from a management or I suppose more an accountancy point of view as to what is driving and motivating the various stakeholders and the relationships between them. The reason I wanted to do it is that it's got some case studies in it that are particularly interesting. They're all drawn from the public sector um, and in a way if you're looking at failures of IT projects it's, it's harder to get information in the private sector because the private sector aren't as forthcoming whereas the public sector has got various scrutiny committees uh, here. It's got the national, it's got the audit office, which is referred to. But if you look, um, it's uh, setting the scene by saying that the government has made a, a commitment to use information technology in a structured and uh, um, crucial way, pivotal way, and they certainly are doing that. But you look at the kind of money that's been talked about, you know, £10 billion. Pounds. This article was published in 2001. £10 billion by 2003. And there are figures around to do with, um, with project failures. Um, you know, general... Uh, well, this is going back a little bit, so it is to the end of um, the, the end of the 1990s. But there, in the United States, for example, one estimate was information system projects accounted for $81 billion annually. Um, and various sort of rates of failure ranging from between 40 to 60%. So quite, quite amazing amounts of money. But if you look at some of the, the portions I want to point you to in this, start about um, three or four pages in. Yes, starts at page 366. And there's a classic one there, the Wessex Regional Health Authority, Regional Information Systems Plan. And the total cost of that was estimated at £43 million. Um, one estimate put the total cost in the region of £60 million. Um, and there's a discussion there as to the failure and the reason for the failure. Um, 
There, they're, they're pulling out the fact that there were no budgetary or delivery targets were set for the project. The management control was effectively impossible and the project was characterised by delays, cost overruns and serious conflicts of interest. Another one that we had in this country, and they're all based around this country, was the UK Passport Agency System Project, which was one where they were having to do it to a type, tight deadline. They were having to do it, um, and the, the rules were changed on the way through because it was then decided that children would have to have passports and not be able to travel on the, on the parents' passports. So um, it was abandoned in the mid-1999, um, following problems in the first two offices to roll out, and they had no contingency plan to deal with the increased backlog of work. Again, another one, the Immigration and Nationality Directorate Casework Programme was a large-scale IT project to process immigration and asylum administration and it failed as well. That was a, an issue to do with the, the contractors. Um, the contractors didn't wait until a particular exercise to do with the processes had been carried out. Right. Um, the Ministry of Defence Intelligent Processing System, Trawler Man, I like the name for that. Um, it was eventually delivered, this was 1993, two years late, um, but didn't meet a specification and they wrote it off at a cost of nearly £50 million. Pounds. It can also have effects upon stakeholders um, in a, a particularly unfortunate sort of way. There was a very, I think, very one of the, the worst ones was the Benefits Agency and Post Office Counters Limited Benefit Payment Card Project, which, amongst other things, was going to deliver, deliver pensions, the state pension to pensioners. They didn't have it uh, right, as a result of which many pensioners were worried that they were getting overpaid so that they were trying to save money out of the pension. So it caused quite a lot of upset, quite a lot of distress to a vulnerable section of the, the population. There's an electronic trading system, which is number six there, but I think that's probably um, dwarfed by the London Stock Exchange system, the, the tourist system, which was to be introduced and was eventually pulled at a cost of about £400 million. That was uh, in the private sector in the London Stock Exchange. So if you look at this here, you see that there are <coughs> many um, major sort of problems. Um, he goes on, Tom Brown in this article goes on on page 369 really to identify or to have some comments on the, the nature of the problem. And do have a look through those various case studies, both those and the, the single sheet that I, I gave out, because it does identify some of the major questions that there are around. But as a, a result of this here, Brown identifies three factors. The problems inherent in software development itself, the problems of insufficient management capacity, and the problems created by the methods of procurement utilised. And this article really has to do with the methods of procurement um, coming from the background that he has. But you see, there are, it's a, it's a tripos. There are three legs to it. Um, the problems inherent in software development itself, and that's what we'll be mainly focusing on this week, the problems of insufficient management capacity, and the problems created by the methods of procurement utilised. Interesting to pull those three things out, and in a sense, giving equal weight to each of them. You have to get all of them right. It's going to fail if you don't get all of them right. And I'm sure there's a lot of experience in this room of people who have been involved probably with software development. Perhaps we can have a discussion about that at the end. All right. 
So let me turn then to uh, three sets of users and try to, the point of view of this here really, so why, why do this? It's just trying to get again some kind of a handle on the problems, what can go wrong and if we can identify the problems then hopefully circumvent them um, in some sort of way or at least address them or be aware of them in the appropriate risk analysis. So we divided it up into end users, um, people who are going to be using the product, um, managers or clients who have got some responsibility for procuring it, um, perhaps have got a say in whether the project continues or whether it's cancelled, and then yourselves, uh, the role that you're going to be playing which has to do with the system developers, which is a, a, a crucial part of it. But all of these people have to be satisfied really for the project to be to be successful. So if we look at some of the, I mean, a term that used to be used was the, the idea of vaporware, um, a project not really appearing and there are different numbers around. It's been suggested in the United States that as many as 25% of all projects in large management information system departments are never finished. Um, and the Wessex Society one was another example, the, the Wessex uh, Regional Health Society uh, health system was one that was never delivered as well. Um, the London Ambulance is another one that was particularly unfortunate here um, that uh, had to be scrapped and then had to be redeveloped. Right. Um, another thing is just the usability of it and this is sort of fairly standard type of thing, you know, sort of the, the interface design, you know, the inappropriate choice of um, colours on the screen. Uh, wrong colour of text and the wrong background, um, things that are just sort of silly, you know, like using a, a backspace key to delete words or whatever, you know, you've, you've all seen. Um, uh, incomprehensible error messages, well, we all get those. Um, and unhelpful help, you know, such as the classic one is, you know, wrong date format, try again. Um, not uh, And here, this is a particular various classical examples of this poor response times, one of which is uh, a new system that was introduced again in the, in the health service to help nurses operate in um, intensive care wards, but it actually was slower than the old manual system whereby they went through a, a cord so that the, the response time had a, it, it's another example of what it's a bit like the emergent properties, it's the situation where a difference in quantity can make a difference in quality. And I think the best example of that really is that if we were to show pictures here at two pictures a second, what you would see would be two pictures a second. But if I increase that by an order of magnitude, tenfold, and I show 20 to 25 pictures a second, what you see is a continuous film on the, uh, on the screen. Right, it's got to do with physiology and lots of things like that. But that's where a difference in quantity makes a major qualitative difference. You sort of reach it like a step function or you reach a particular threshold where different kinds of behaviour is observed as the quantity sort of increases. So you have to uh, be aware of that and unreliability in operation. Um, and the thing about that is that often you only get the one chance when you're implementing a computerised system, if it goes wrong, you lose the people and you never really get them back again. The example to give here would be if you 
what happened on one occasion where a network was introduced um, with tape backups and the staff were told that they didn't have to do their own backups the way they did previously, that they were all going to be done in the tape backups. A mechanical fault occurred in the tape backup. The system had to be restored and it was found out that the tape backups hadn't been working for six months and a lot of data had to be re-entered. So if you were doing that there, what would you do? You start to make your own backups and then you get all the issues connected with um, currency of information and what's the, what's the up-to-date kind of situation. But, you know, so you can, there are some times when you can only make, you can't make the first mistake because if you make it, you're going to lose, lose your audience after that. All right. Um, what more have I got there? Um, <coughs> And again, it depends upon the, uh, looking at this one here, they're related. Um, oh, if you've got a library system but you can't search for books unless you know the complete title of the book or you know the author's complete name, then it's not particularly good. So, you, you know, you, it has to be, that's a specification issue, performance I've just mentioned. Here is one that um, it is interesting because it depends upon the motivation of the of the users. Um, there's another very nice and well-documented one where it had to do with the problem of um, stacking material in a warehouse. And stacking material, um, sort of stacking problem is, is quite a difficult one. And they developed a computer algorithm that, that said how the boxes or whatever it was could be stacked. But it wasn't as good as the warehouse people who were doing it and who had that intuition about how to do it. And as a result, um, they found ways of working around the computerized system which told them how to do the stacking and did it themselves. And the reason they found the work around it was that it was an area of country where there was very high unemployment. You know, and they didn't want to for the firm to go down or to lose their jobs because of the uh, introduction of of, of the system. Okay, <clears throat> so that's the end user's point of view. If we turn to the to the client, the poor client. Um, well, I'm sure you may have heard the statement: "If I'd known the real price, I'd never have agreed." And this summarizes, I think, whether it's true or not. One feels that it should be typical: is one year late and a hundred percent over budget. It's quite, quite a remarkable statistic, isn't it, um, uh, to both inadequate in terms of time and in terms of, of finance. Um, here you have other pressures that may, may exist upon you, um, really the time pressures. We had a classic one, which was the Millennium Bug and people doing software fixes had to have that ready for the, whatever the particular date was. It was no use even being one day late. But one that does bite quite a lot are new, new legislation coming in. Um, things such as new pensions legislation that has come in here in Britain. Um, issues to do with um, local taxation, which changed quite dramatically over a period of two or three years here in Britain, and councils had to have their software up and running in order to send out the invoices to collect the money in, otherwise there would have been a massive cash flow situation. So where you get some sort of um, legislative deadline coming through, then it's very important that you are able to satisfy it. And then commercial projects where um, it can be important just to be first into the market you know, something like Amazon getting in quickly um, and able to build upon that particular success so that the timing can be, can be 
can be vitally important. So these are, if you like, sort of, you know, um, the wider environmental uh, pressures that the system can be under. Right. I think I've probably uh, alluded to this one here, that this, from the client's point of view, this is the, the, the client for the people whose network backup didn't work. You know, okay, so it works, but the installation was such a mess that my staff will never trust it. Um, and I think the thing here, and particularly if an alternative is available, that was a backup problem and there was a, an alternative way of being able to do the backup so that you run, if you've got that kind of a situation, then you do run into quite a lot of difficulties, can run into quite a lot of difficulties. This is one that's particularly subtle um, and I'm sure many of you have got your own stories. It sometimes doesn't suit us to row in with a particular software development for a whole variety of reasons. I've been in a situation whereby somebody's come along and said to me, you know, we're wanting to do this particular thing, we'd like you to talk to the developers, it's only going to take you a couple of days. And you say, well, you know, what about the other things I'm supposed to be doing? Um, are you going to get somebody in to help me to over those couple of days? Oh, no, 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 no. So there's a, you, you know, you're asking people to give up time, you're not removing some of the other work that they're responsible for, so that there can be not everybody need be as enthusiastic about the, as enthusiastic about the project as everybody else, um, and that's only you know the, the easiest kind of example. There can be you know situations whereby you're going to make sure that you're not responsible if it happens to fail, but you'd like perhaps to see that somebody else is responsible if it does fail. So you've got all of those kind of um, contention between managers and between groups of managers. Um, very 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 political things. It has to be handled very carefully or with great awareness, really. Right. The other thing that happens and is bound to happen is that people learn. As they start to get engaged with the process of developing a particular system, they first of all learn some of the potential potentialities that they hadn't thought of before. So they'll want new things as it goes along. Um, things will change. Um, external events happen. Um, over the project timescale, it's, it's really, it's due to the fact that you've got this period, um, reasonable period of time, in which the external environment changes and in a sense the internal environment changes, the internal environment being the commissioning person who will try to develop different things. So it's all got to do with some very um, subtle, some very difficult kind of um, issues here. Okay. And the poor developer, I've got a sort of an amalgam of quotes that were made here um, for the developer, all right, which tends to indicate, you would think the developer's task should be the most tightly defined of all, but it doesn't often work out that way. And um, yes, here it is here. So this is what a developer might have said. No matter how skilled you are, you can't achieve anything until the users, clients, etc. tell you what they want. And at the start, they don't even agree with each other. Eventually, with skill and perseverance, you produce a specification with which everyone is reasonably happy. You work for months to produce a system that meets the specification and you install it. In no time at all, users complain that it doesn't do what they need it to do. You check the software against the specification and you find that it does exactly what it was supposed to do. The problem is that the users have changed their minds. They just don't realise that it's not possible to change your mind late in a project. By then, everything you've done depends on everything else. 
and to change anything, you would almost have to start all over again. Or it turns out that they didn't understand the specification when they accepted it. Or there's some ambiguity about what it meant, and you have interpreted it differently from them. Whatever the reason, it's always your fault. Even though all you ever tried to do was to give them what they wanted. So. Um, and again, you get pushed into delivering it because you want to keep your job. Um, pressures to do with, uh, essentially, usually comes down to money, which has got particular... Um, and uh, what's disappearing off the bottom is impatience of users and clients, uh, which rush you to produce uh, material quicker than you, you would otherwise do. You have time deadlines, you've got financial deadlines, you can, you, you're well aware of what the, the difficulties are. But this is something I think that is, I feel quite strongly about in that software artifacts are like any other mechanical artifact in that if something goes wrong, and you'll have an experience of this with your programming, you have to, in a sense, work out what it does before you can go about fixing it. And that is hard. I find the piece of code doesn't have to be very long before you want to go and sit in a dark room um, and try to work out what was going on with it. It can be very difficult to understand. I mean, it's difficult enough to understand mechanical um, artifacts when you try to fix them, a video recorder or DVD or whatever. You have to try to work out what they do before you can go try to analyse what the problem is and then go about trying to fix what the problem is. Um, similar with software, but if anything, I think it's much, much harder with software than it uh, is with other things because some of the, um, the ways that the, some of the logic behind it is really what I'm saying, can be quite um, hard to hold it all together. Right. So, um, again, well, these are depending upon the, the type of situation and the amount of authority that you have within the organisation. Um, uh, you know, we said it was impossible, but no one listened. I mean, uh, I've been involved with things where the project was decided to go ahead with, and you just knew it was impossible. Yeah, there's no way this can be done for this amount of money in that time. I'm telling you. Well, you do it anyway. It's... Uh, and then, you know, the system's fine, the users are the problem. Yeah. My lecturing's fine, it's the students that are the problem. <laughs> uh, all right, so <coughs> you've got a variety of things um, coming up here. This diagram you'll have, you'll have seen before. I really put it up so that I can uh, confuse myself as to the difference between verify and validate. <laughs> I, 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 um, I've got it written down. Credits on the left, debits on the right. I don't know if you, I think that accountant comes into his office, 40 years, opens up the right hand drawer of the desk at the beginning of each morning, and then when he retires, his colleagues say, what have you got in that right hand drawer? You keep opening up first time, first thing in the morning, and he says, little piece of paper, it says credits on the left, debits on the right. Or maybe it's the other way around. Um, validation is concerned with matching the system to the customer's requirements. And verification, on the other hand, is concerned with issues of internal correctness. Does the system match its specification? Um, you've discussed that in the, in the previous unit, so you, you have that there. Um, then come to some of the things that we're going to be looking at. 
problem definition, feasibility assessment, and Bob, you're going to be picking up on that after lunch, um, data gathering and system modeling, which John is going to be picking up on on Monday, and then coming up with the requirements definition, which usually forms the basis of a contract. Um, so that's part of the outline of our of our summer school really on that particular slide. But of course there are other things that you want to uh, take into account and again these would be things that we sort of be addressing. Um, you can take different approaches to the solution. You can just do the bare minimum one here. You can do something that has some potential for evolution or you can do something that really is quite bespoke. Um, and here I just wanted to, because it's going to be important, we mentioned about the system boundary which had to do with the environment. But within that there, what you, can, you can decide what system it is that you, you wish to consider, that you wish to investigate, but you needn't necessarily computerise all of it. So you can computerise parts of it, but let's say you decide you're going to leave other parts still in the manual form that you find it, or a modified manual in the form. And all the other issues, as you can see, when you're delivering a, a product for which you're going to get paid and for which you're going to be responsible, you've got other issues as the hardware to run it on. Um, and um, the, the user things, these points you've considered before. So we won't be going into many of the actual building of the system, but of course you've got the different kinds of things here that one can deliver um, along with the system itself. So that side of things. Um, I suppose the one I want to pick up here, you know, the testing side, it's more on the, the maintenance side of things <coughs> with the package that you're giving. And maintenance really should be not an excuse for just testing. It should be something that helps try to fit it to what the, the customer actually wants to have. But frequently it, it is used as a euphemism for testing the product to make sure that it actually does. All right. So that brings us then to the big picture. And in a way, what I've been doing is just trying, as I say, to convince you that the issues really are very hard. And it's a fascinating area of research. It's an area in which there's a lot of research going on in order to try to minimise the kind of failures. But as you see, because it involves interaction among people, it involves quite complicated situations which one tries to model in a variety of different ways, that it's not going to be a straightforward exercise in order to take but at the same time it's an absolutely essential one and what we've, we'll be going on um, so I think Bob you're going to be this afternoon you're going to be down this left hand column here I think on the feasibility and the, the data data side of things and then John doing some of the modeling then and picking up with um, later on in the week with some of the other components of it. So that's, so we'll be returning to this picture uh, on quite a few occasions during the uh, course of the lectures and picking up various of the points here. So with that I shall stop and ask you if you've got any questions or if you've got any experiences of good software, good IT projects or of uh, ones that haven't gone so well. Does, does anything that I've said resonate with any of your experiences? If you can say without breaking co confidential commercial confidentiality.